Hello, everybody, and welcome to another season of the Samwise Yaboinski podcast. My name is Chris Holton Jablonski, and it is my great joy and my deep honor to serve you as your minister. We have a very special beginning little teaser episode. Many of you know our theme this fall is courage. And so we reached out to a bunch of folks and invited people to share stories about courage. And we have four, well, five, if you include mine, four, five little stories as we kick off this theme. And so we're so grateful to Catherine Bonfilio, Jesse Tordoff, Olivia Rotz, and Jane Manassian, all who have shared stories that you'll hear in just a little bit. But when I was thinking about courage for me, one gentleman came to mind. And in the last church I served, he showed up with his wife uh, and we met and we were talking on their way in. And he already knew at that point that he had a terminal cancer diagnosis which is a very unique way to enter into a community. And he and his wife dove right in. They didn't know if he had four months. They didn't know if he had a year. They didn't think he would have a year. But interestingly, for years and years, he was a professor who taught classes on death and dying. And so he had a lot of experience, theoretically anyway, with preparing to die. And he spoke really openly about it. We had a church retreat pretty early on and they shared what was going on in their lives and they were swept in so sweetly, so beautifully into the community. And over and over partnering with him and with his beloved in the process of his death and dying, I was struck by the courage that he mustered, that she mustered over and over again to arrive in the fullness of what was happening. Not that it was always easy, by far never always easy, but they did over and over again and continued to reach out and bring people in, reach out when they needed support. It was a beautiful thing to experience. And when he did finally come to die. It was about a year after they first arrived. And I was so grateful to have had so much time and to have learned on a personal level, just as a human person who will one day come to die myself, to learn how I want to approach that time and how I want to be. The kind of courage that I want to muster in that difficult hour.
There are individuals who are adventuresome and fearless. They are often called courageous as they scale mountains or plumb the depth of the oceans. But I think of courage as finding something within you, at your core, that you tap when a moment arises unexpectedly in your life. And for some, in order to be truthful to themselves and their values, make a difference with political courage. I do not think of my father as a courageous man. He was thoughtful and kind, a loving father whom we knew as not particularly athletic and occasionally very stubborn. We lived in a small town in Iowa of about 3,000 in the 1950s and 60s. For the kindergarten to eighth grade years, we had one school that we all attended. For high school, we boarded a bus to the nearby city, a college town, and attended public high school there. Our community paid a fee for each student to attend the city high school. In the last days at my junior high, the school district of the city decided that they wanted our town school district to merge with theirs and that they would no longer be accepting students by tuition. And so our town was turned upside down. The hostilities erupted that divided our little town for the remainder of the days of those living at the time. My father was the son of Sicilian immigrants. His father was a day laborer in Milwaukee. His father died when he was nine and his mother uh, when he was 14. My father, with the encouragement and support of his teachers, was able to attend Columbia University and the University of Chicago Medical School. He became a professor of orthopedic surgery and moved his growing family to Iowa on the invitation of a college friend. He firmly believed in the importance and transformation of education. He served on the school board of our town, and he led the fight to support the merger of our local town school district with the larger city. He and others were firm that this offered the best options for students in our community and that the funding and resources would improve our schools. A new middle school for the area was needed, and he reasoned that it would be built in our town. In watching much of today's divisiveness, I can easily go back to that time. The no votes for not merging believed we would be losing the small town feel with the merger with the larger city. Think educated elites. We are a working class town. And while there were many who supported the merger, there were many who did not see the value in education. We could set up our own high school and church basements, they proposed. They feared losing control of their children's education and losing power to the larger city. My father and many others on the yes vote side were adamant that the better educational outcome was the merger. The debate was heated and vitriolic. There were verbal attacks and neighbors stopped speaking to each other. My father was a target of much of the anger from the opposition. Mostly it was verbal and my parents kept most of it from me. My mother later said that one day two men drove into our driveway. They had guns, which may have been an intentional scare, or maybe they had been hunting, but she was frightened. She told my father, let's just move. He stood firm and said no one was going to scare him away. They were doing the right thing for the students and for the community, and he was going to stay and fight. The first referendum vote went in favor of the no votes against the merger. So the Yes Committee, led by my father, started a new campaign. And the second time around, the Yes prevailed. And that new junior high, it was built in our town, and students were bused there from the city. 
So I think every aspect of theater involves courage. I think writing plays about thought-provoking topics requires courage. I think every time an actor takes on a character and presents it to an audience, it takes courage. I think directors are courageous in interpreting and furthering the works of the playwrights. Anyway, theater and art is is full of courageous acts. A few things my daughter has done uh, come to mind. She's a professional actor and playwright, and she created two plays uh, which were pretty controversial, and I'm going to talk about the second one, uh, which was called How to Load a Musket and was staged in New York about two and a half, three years ago. And this was sort of a um, docu-theater about people who reenact historical events, like the Lexington Minuteman. And so she got pretty deep into the world of reenactors, which brought her deeply into questions about the Civil War. And she not only interviewed and presented the words and stories of Lexington Minutemen, but she also traveled down south to Virginia, uh, where there were some reenactments going on, and she interviewed Southerners uh, about their feelings uh, regarding the Civil War and its reenactment. And this was at a time when monuments started coming down, and there was a lot of controversy about the meaning of the war. So anyway, the play was staged in New York, And she was actually somewhat uncomfortable about how the Southerners she had interviewed might perceive the play. She felt it was controversial in many ways in presenting their words. And she also worried that people in New York and from New England would also have issue with how the words of the Southerners were presented. So it was sort of an angsty situation on both sides. And things kept changing during the uh, period in which she was developing the play and actually while it was being performed. There was some violence at reenactments. There was a lot in the news. So it was a courageous act to both develop this play to, like a journalist, to explore both sides of issues and to present them to the public. Theater inherently has as its goal to explore controversy and to make people think differently. So playwrights and actors are taking risks and being courageous as they put that material out there on the stage for the public to consume, to criticize, to absorb, and to think about. I've noticed there's stories of courage, both big and also very small, pretty much everywhere in science. And my brain went to the very big stories um, of my two two of my favorite scientists. Um, And excuse my horrendous French pronunciation, but they're Jacob and Minot. These guys were two brilliant scientists, and they actually discovered one of my favorite biological ideas, and that's the idea that gene expression can act kind of like logical electric circuits in some ways. So essentially, you can imagine, we all know DNA makes RNA makes proteins, but they kind of came up with this idea that those proteins could feed back to regulate the DNA themselves. So it works in this beautiful feedback loop. So they were actually, while doing all this crazy cool science, were in the French resistance and they were fighting against the Nazis. 
and essentially risked everything, including deportation to concentration camps, um, which about is, is about as scary as you could imagine. And they had many other these humanitarian efforts, even after the war, that they participated in. It's just incredible courage and bravery. And then just random facts, but Minot was actually also best friends with Camus, the writer, one time, the Gestapo were outside of Minot's lab, and they were trying to come in and take the documents that contained the name of resistance fighters. And he took these documents, and he hid them inside the bone, <laughs> the leg bone of a stuffed giraffe, which was inside of his lab. And it totally worked. They didn't find it, and everybody got away alive that day. So I think this is an example of true courage, a very big story happening among scientists, and also of a lot of ingenuity. But then I also think there's a lot of courage and bravery happening on a much smaller level in science, too, today. A um, ton of, like, micro-courage events <laughs> you see just working in the lab. So the one example that kind of came to my mind, um, which I saw a lot, if you could imagine you're a little baby undergrad, you working, you're working for hours and hours to set up this big, fancy experiment, and there's a whole group of other people who are exhausted and have devoted all of their time to this one experiment, and you're working with equipment that costs twice what you would make in a year, you know, if you're a graduate student, then at the end of the day, let's say you work so hard on this, you realize you made a mistake, you forgot to add something, an enzyme, to the mix of enzymes that you're using. So once you realize this, you kind of have two choices. Either you can explain your mistake, which risks making yourself look super stupid, everyone's mad at you, you're letting down your co coworkers, or you could just not tell anyone, no one would get mad at you, hope your mistake is ignored. But of course, at the risk of um, having disingenuous or bad science. So I'm very happy to say that I found almost everyone I worked with takes that former path. And I think it takes a ton of courage to be honest in that moment and be honest that you've made a mistake, even when it's so inconvenient. And I think um, even though it's very small compared to fighting Nazis, I think it's incredible. And one of the great reasons to, to work in science is that micro braveries that happen everywhere. Before she had her stroke, my friend, I'll call her Beth, just like all of us, could memorize hours of opera in any number of foreign languages and sing all of it from memory. We were a family in a well-oiled machine, and then one day, her seat was empty. There was a hole in the lineup where she sat for so many years. She won't be back, probably, they said. She had a massive stroke. She cannot speak, she cannot walk. She probably will never sing again. Over a year went by, and it seemed that they were right. And then one day, maybe two years later, there she was again. Her hair was short and pure white, where it had been medium length and brown, and she was thin, where she had been plump. I think we were singing in Russian that day, and there she was singing it all with us. How was this possible? So I asked and I listened and learned. For more than 100 years, it has been known that people who can't speak after injury to the speech centers on the left side of the brain can still sing. However, nobody really did anything with that knowledge for a long time. If you were a stroke victim who lost the ability to speak, you might have gone to conventional speech therapy 
and you might have struggled to produce even one word at a time. And then when your therapy was over, that was it. You learned what you learned, and you were probably damaged forever. However, my friend noticed that she really could still sing and spoke to her speech therapist about it. However, her therapist wasn't comfortable with singing therapy. The science wasn't advanced enough, he said, to prove that singing results in any kind of lasting change to the brain. And are you really going to want to sing everything every time you need to speak? That was not going to be the path forward. However, for Beth, singing always was a kind of therapy, so even if it wasn't going to teach her to speak, it would at least help her feel a bit like herself again. So she sang. First, she sang to herself, and then to her voice teacher. She also noticed that she could dance a bit when she sang, where she couldn't walk normally. So she sang some more, and she danced a little bit, and pretty soon, she walked. After many, many more months of hard work, she asked for a re-audition to our old family and was welcomed with open arms. She said she couldn't memorize the music anymore, at least not the way she used to. Her brain just didn't work that way anymore. So she found a new way to learn. Flashcards. Snippets of text set to music. Studied for hours, every day. And her brain learned in the new way as her feet learned and her hands learned. Slowly but surely, through the music and through the courage of her convictions, she learned how to heal her brain. Beth found a new speech therapist, someone who supported her singing, and showed her how she could use the same side of her brain to learn poetry and then prose and then, then at long last, normal, fluent speech. Someone who didn't know any better would never suspect she had a massive stroke at all. Beth found her voice through music and through her courageous example, many stroke victims in Boston now have the same opportunity. There are individuals who are adventuresome and fearless. They're often called courageous as they scale mountains or plumb the depths of the ocean. I think of courage as finding something within you, at your core, that you tap when a moment arises unexpectedly in your life. Some, in order to be truthful to their values and to those around them, find political courage, sometimes despite overwhelming circumstances. No mother should lose a child to murder. No sister should lose a brother this way. The grief is profound and endless. No one with this abyss should sit through the trial of the person who murdered your loved one. July 12, 2006, an 18-year-old named Herman Taylor was murdered just a few minutes away from his front door in Roxbury. His murder was described as mistaken identity. His murderer was looking for members of a rival gang when he confronted Taylor, who was walking home from a friend's house. Herman was a choice student at Belmont High, a program that allowed unfilled seats to be filled by students from other communities. He was a promising student and athlete playing on the basketball team at Belmont High School. He had just started a new job. His death was felt profoundly by all who knew him, family, friends, classmates, and teammates alike. The family was, as to be expected, devastated. 
his sister, Marissa Luz, might have chosen to withdraw into a grief, as was, was to be expected with a sudden traumatic loss. But Marissa was not going to be silent. Her desire to honor her brother's memory put grief into action, with the hope that action would save other young black men in Boston. She was moved to organize a rally in March, working with other Boston families who had lost loved ones, and with elected officials, Marissa organized a Take Back Our Neighborhood march. Members of the Belmont community, including high school students and elected Belmont officials, joined with Boston families and officials for an evening rally and march through Boston. Marissa then engaged in work with the Louis D. Brown Peace Institute to continue working for a peaceful Boston. She and her family have walked for years in the Mother's Day Walk for Peace in Herman's honor. Finding strength and courage to continue, both Marissa and Herman's mother, Sarah Coleman, spoke at the 2007 Martin Luther King Breakfast in Belmont. Most recently, this courageous individual ran for Boston City Council. While she did not win, she showed her continued interest in improving the city of Boston. I consider her a political hero.